The Alma Ahsed School for Girls in the Bashorda neighborhood of Beirut is a grand old building. The architecture is typical for a late 19th or early 20th century building in this part of Beirut. Slender marble columns, a grand staircase leading to the main entrance, which opens onto a large, bright central courtyard. This neighborhood used to be where Beirut's elites lived, before the civil war that racked the country and fractured its society between 1975 and 1990, and before decades of political and economic mismanagement brought about one of the worst financial meltdowns in modern history. Nowadays, Bashorda is an intriguing district, filled with tired but regal buildings like the Al Ma'asid School, and with antiques shops whose dusty wares give a glimpse into this old Lebanon. But on a recent Sunday, Many at the Elma Ersed are hoping to start their country on a new path, turning a corner in what has been a particularly bleak period for the country and its people. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Finbar Anderson. In this week's episode, we're looking at Lebanon's huge recent election. Was it the turning point for an embattled country in desperate need of respite? Or was it a sideshow designed to buy the ruling elite some time and a little extra legitimacy in the eyes of the international community. Before we start, if you want to get all the latest from Beyond the Headlines, hit subscribe in your podcast app. On Sunday the 15th of May, across Lebanon, people came to schools and public buildings to vote in what was seen by many as a pivotal election. The last elections in 2018 had seen familiar faces elected from parties largely made up of the same people who had fought the civil war decades earlier. But since then, the economy had started to creak and strain before collapsing in a downward spiral that shows no signs of slowing down ever since. In 2019, hundreds of thousands of people across Lebanon had risen up in a popular protest movement, apparently determined to change a political system that seemed to be pushing the country over a precipice. Then, in August of 2020, a devastating explosion at Beirut's port killed hundreds, left hundreds of thousands homeless in an instant, and caused billions of dollars worth of damage in a country that could ill afford to pay the bill. Many blamed the same culture of political mismanagement for the catastrophic explosion. This, then, was the context in which people went to the polls on that Sunday. In the Al Ma'asad, some appeared hopeful. I decided to come because I want to vote them out. I am for change and I want back my Lebanon. Others looked exhausted. One woman, who gave her name as Dania, sat in the shade of a small cluster of old trees in the schoolyard. We don't want our children to emigrate, like so many have done already, she told me. We've been impoverished, she told me. All our money went to the banks. She told me her son needs medicine at a cost of $400, a sum she could not afford, even if she was able to find it in a country where pharmacy shelves are becoming increasingly barren due to the spiraling cost of imports. At a nearby coffee shop, however, not everyone was so set on the need for change. Patrons wore caps and t-shirts in either the bright yellow of Hezbollah or the green of the group's ally, Amal. Both have been integral fixtures of Lebanon's political system for decades. 
passengers in the cars driving past waved flags with the party's logos on them. Inside Abu Ali, the shop's owner juggled several porter filters and cardboard espresso cups in order to keep up with the demands of his many patrons seated outside. He's not wearing party colors, but it's no secret who he's voting for. I always vote, Abu Ali says. I vote for a patriot, a great man who has protected this country for 40 years. His name is Nabih Berri. Mr. Berri is Lebanon's 84-year-old Speaker of Parliament, who has been in office longer than the younger voters at the polling stations have been alive. Alongside Hezbollah Secretary-General Hassan Nasrallah, he's one of the leaders of the Shia community in Lebanon and leads the Amal movement. To his supporters, Bidri is a steadfast bastion of the Shia community. But to his detractors, Bidri is a billionaire who has used his position to consolidate his own power and wealth. But the economic crisis, Abu Ali insists, is a ploy by foreign countries to weaken Hezbollah. But we're holding tight to this country, he says, to the end. A cleaner mops the floor of the Free Patriotic Movement, or FPM, headquarters in Batroun. Two days have passed since Sunday's election, but the results aren't yet as clear as the gleaming tiles below our feet. The FPM has been a key player in Lebanese politics for years. After the last election, the Christian party allied with Hezbollah, Amal, and some smaller parties to win a majority in parliament. Now, no one's quite sure if they'll be able to do the same again. Batroun is an ancient seaside town, built up with old sandstone houses, just like the building we're in now, the party's headquarters. Against a wall leans a painting, showing a bucolic Lebanese landscape with the head of Gibran Basile, the party's leader, floating somewhat disarmingly just off-center. Batroun here, FPM, especially with Minister Gibran Basile, uh gave a lot for Batroun, a lot of uh, projects with uh, Old Souk and Batroun, Old Souk and Duma. If everyone worked like uh, Gibran Basil and Batroun, Lebanon will be great. This is Stefan Karam. He's a lawyer by trade, but he's been playing his part with the FPM's campaign recently. He's a slim man, quiet perhaps, but friendly, and he offers to show us around. Around the side of the building, he shows off the organization's new Beta Shabib, or Youth Center. It's clear the party sees itself very much a part of Batroun's future, and by extension, Lebanon's future. Stefan can't find the keys, but he encourages me and my colleague, Nadal Homsi, to look in through the large glass doors. Oh, wow. That's cool. It's like a little cafe. Café with uh, baby food, billiard, uh, ping pong. Another way. And why was this built? A lounge for uh, for studying, for meetings. Nice. And yeah, it's a bit shabby. It's kind of it, it, it's geared towards the young younger people, I guess. House for young people, yes. Mm. And it was built for people to with... at, to attract him to the political uh, <laughs> life. Okay. 
kind of an attraction for the, to the political life. Wow. Yes. A big screen TV, some beanbag chairs, and I noticed there was a study area. Oh, and a cafe. I would come football, football matches, basketball matches. Sign nice. Me Sign me up for the FPM. It's a very nice cafe. Stefan puts in a call and arranges for us to meet Tony Nasser, one of the FPM's lead campaign organizers for these elections. His office is just a short distance away and it stands out from the Batroun Sandstone, a modern construction, all glass and sharp corners. Here as well, the cleaners are at work. Nada and I keep out of the way on seats in the corner while we wait for Tony. He eventually welcomes us into a large office. Tony sits behind an impressive desk in a corner of the room, his degree certificates from Georgia Institute of Technology framed on the wall behind him. How are you? Good? Hello, Shut up, man. Hi. How are you? Hi. Good. Nada. How are you? I'm Tony. Nice to meet you. Sorry for making you wait. Okay. I wasn't here. You're very busy. You're very, very busy. Are yeah. you the I started working back. I came back to my work. This is my uh, company here. Mm -hmm. So I've been uh, out for, uh, for a while. Electrical so that's why right? I'm a, a structural engineer. Structural engineer. Yes, it's an engineering company here. Um, and before you came back to work, you were the main campaign manager, right? Yes. Yeah. Actually, I have a position. I'm the coordinator of the four districts in the party. So that's why I became later on the main campaign manager. Tony takes a little while to open up. He's distrustful of the media. Despite his popularity in Batroun, FPM leader Gibran Basil is far from popular elsewhere in the country. The son-in-law of the current president, he's seen by many as a core member of the country's political elite. During the 2019 uprisings, some particularly fruity chants involving Basile's mother echoed off the walls of the buildings as protesters thronged the streets. Tony feels, however, that his boss and the party has been subjected to an unfair media campaign that has sought to tarnish their reputation. So it's with this in mind that Tony declares this latest election a victory for the FBM. They haven't won as many seats as in 2018. They've lost a handful, in fact. But Tony insists that given the apparent media onslaught against them, that constitutes a success. Some of the clear winners from Sunday's election were the so-called independents, candidates unaffiliated to traditional Lebanese parties and seen by many as the country's hope to set Lebanon on a new path. They gained a dozen or so seats in parliament making them for the first time a political force to be reckoned with, as much as many of Lebanon's long-established parties. Feras Hamdan, a young lawyer who was injured by rubber bullet during the anti-government protest movement, even won a seat in the south of the country, an area heavily dominated by Amal and Hezbollah. But Tony's confident that some of those independents can be persuaded to join the FPM and its allies. I would like to see them in the parliament. They will, they will be side by side for sure. If they mean what they said in the revolution, I'm sure they will be in our, in our uh, part. They will be with us. But their attitude so far has been always, you know, uh, against the establishment parties. You know, the, the revolution was always like an anti-establishment movement, I guess, and the FBM 
um, FEM deal with, uh, Hezbollah, Amal, you know, these are establishment parties. So why, why do you think those independent candidates might, might kind of side, side with you in the parliament? They will discover soon that it's not, they, you won't beat Hezbollah by propaganda and by speeches. And we have to split between this, the Hezbollah weapons and how to bring power for Lebanon, how to bring electricity, how to build dams, how to build roads, how to do reform in the institutions. So when, when you do that split, we have to ally to do so. But anyway, Tony says, a parliamentary majority is not a particularly concrete notion in the context of Lebanese politics. So the majority, something fictitious here in Lebanon. Okay. We might have a majority for the presidency election or a majority to pass some laws, but not always. So that's why this does not mean anything. This was a, a fundraising campaign, getting a majority to change uh, things in this country. It's a fundraising campaign only. We press Tony on the fact that his party has been in power for years, effectively presiding over the country's collapse. How can it be a meaningful part of the change necessary to turn the country around? But he insists the FPM has been hamstrung by uncooperative political allies and an international community willing to let Lebanon suffer in order to carry out its agenda. Nothing will change unless the international community are convinced that their program or their schedule for Lebanon is not going to happen. So they have to step back and think about Lebanese people and what they did with them and try to help them. So if the decision, the international decision is to get to do some reform in Lebanon, yes, this parliament can do it. Otherwise, what's going to change? Nada and I return to Beirut. On the fifth floor of the Université Saint-Joseph, we meet Wissam Laham in his office. It's a sparse room. It's clear Wissam dedicates his thought processes considerably more to Lebanon and its political system than to interior design. Nevertheless, the windows offer a wide view onto the shining Mediterranean Sea. The Lebanese continue to stay trapped into, the, into this clientelist regime by thinking that voting for your leader is protecting your community, but we are do, what, what we are doing is destroying the state and the logic of the state. That's why I consider these elections as a collective suicide. When you have elections with no state, an organized state that upholds the rule of law and protects its citizens from exploitation, Elections in these circumstances are collective suicide. It's a way that the people commit suicide. And Sunday was a collective suicide. Wissam holds a markedly different perspective from Tony or Stefan on whether or not the FPM and its allies, or indeed anyone from the old political establishment, will be able to turn the country around. He's a lecturer in Lebanese politics at the university and an expert in constitutional theory. The indelible ink on his finger is beginning to fade. All Lebanese voters are required to dip a finger in the ink as a preventative measure against voting twice. But despite Wissam's recent vote, he's deeply pessimistic about what these elections mean for the country. He'll use the word za'im more than once, by the way, 
It's an Arabic word that means local leader or patron. In this context, he's talking about political leaders, such as the FPM's Gibran Basil. First of all, I don't consider that this political regime didn't organize this election. He only organized them because he knew that he will win. So we forget, first of all, that Lebanese demanded uh, early elections. They refused to, exa- to, to conduct early election after 2019. They waited two years and a half after Corona and after they have succeeded in destroying the momentum of the, what we call the Lebanese revolution by dividing the Lebanese, by using more confessional discourse, and by destroying social solidarity between Lebanese, by creating different interests among Lebanese, by defra- creating different uh, exchange rates in Lebanon. You also created different uh, kind of solidarities between Lebanese. So when they or they only organized the election because they knew that you were going to win the elections. And they organized the elections because they wanted legitimacy, not from the Lebanese essentially, but from the International Monetary Fund, the United States, the European Union, and the international community. They want to acquire legitimacy to justify their role in Lebanon for the international community and not for the Lebanese. So it's a way to, to reinvigorate, renew the legitimacy of the same political regime that controlled Lebanon since 1992 till today. Wissam cites Lebanon's proportional voting system as an example. Candidates need to reach what is a comparatively high threshold in order to be in the running for a seat. It's very high because in other countries, it's a percentage, it's 5% only. So here you have a high exclusion rate and it changes from one district to another because it depends on the number of voters. So in one district it's 10%, another is 12, 13, 8, 9%, 15%. So it's very high, thus undermining the possibility of new political parties and new movement to be represented. Wissam insists that the elections are merely papering over the cracks of a broken system. The ability of certain politicians to make superficial changes only demonstrates that the political elite are able to offer some benefits to their own communities at the expense of the state as a whole. For them, the the system is working because they don't conceive the political order. They only conceive the political order as a a patron-client relation. It's a patron that controls access to state resources and uses state resources to reinforce his power. So the electoral system, the electoral law says that if a political party is used for three years, consecutive years, to distribute services to Lebanese... These uh, services distributed to Lebanese in in money, in goods, in anything, are not to be included in the expenses of the elections. So if you are a clientelist political party, it's better. So you can continue to distribute money, and this is not considered as corruption. It's legal corruption. When we were in Batroun, Tony, the FPM's campaign manager, joked with us that corruption is a thing of the past in Lebanon because well, the money is all gone. But for Wissam, the economic crash shows the exact opposite. It's cheaper to buy now the allegiance of Lebanese. Before, when you had an an artificial exchange rate of $1 to 1,500 Lebanese pounds, it was expensive. Now you can buy Lebanese in a much cheaper, it's in a cheaper way. So even the crisis, you can see, it's such an appalling system, such an abominable system, that they are profiting from the crisis by buying Lebanese, it's easy to buy them, and by immigration. 
those who can leave are those who are a potential menace. So they have a level of education, they can leave, so they leave, we get rid of them, they are, they are neutralized, and they send us dollars to their families. So, th so the state can remain with no social responsibility, you send dollars to your family, you are, you are uh, cool, you accept your situation by receiving dollars from abroad, and you are politically neutralized because you don't have any political significance in Lebanon. So it's a regime that is thriving on the dislocation and destruction of the Lebanese society. Society, Lebanese society is dying, and this political regime, what is really doing is accepting the death of the Lebanese society, but it wants to remain in power. This is the real question in Lebanon. The, this political power or the state, or the society? The state, of course, is a byproduct, it's a consequence of it. So, so, so the society is dying, and uh, the power, uh, the political regime, the Zayim, decided to remain in power even if the Lebanese society died. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Finbar Anderson. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show by clicking the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Thanks this week to Wissam Laham, Tony Nasser, and Stefan Karam. This week's episode was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan.